try that again. Good morning. Pastor Rob, welcome to our 1030 service. Welcome to those of you listening online as well. We are in the second message in this series titled Simply Christian, which is not a basics um, series, that is to say simple, but simply as an essential. And the big idea is to ask ourselves in this post-Easter season, you know, what really is the essence of the Christian faith? Because a lot can get in the way. A lot can get, um, can become, that's things that are um, convictions, maybe they're um, ways in which we experience the faith, then become themselves part of the faith, we think, over time. And, and, and we begin to um, lose the power of what the Christian faith really Uh, promises in our lives. And we have to ask ourselves, or I want to ask ourselves in this series, you know, what is the Bible really say the Christian faith is? So we opened that last week in a message titled, It's All About Jesus. And we're going to take another look at it this morning in the the, uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. So you get ready, you can open up your Bible or turn it on there. I have in my uh, adult life Never been much of a, uh, a conspiracy theorist. Um, you know, it seems to me that, you know, whether it's the, our diets, you know, the kinds of foods we eat, or all the way to geopolitics, you know, today's good food and today's ally is tomorrow's bad food and tomorrow's, you know, enemy. And as a culture, as a society, it seems like if you just pay attention to, you know, the culture. We change our minds a lot, right, about things. And I think we do that. Why do we do that? Why do we seem to believe in one thing one day and, and so confident about this, you know, thing, this way of life, this, this program or this political point of view? And, and the next day, it's almost like the opposite is true. And I, I think part of the reason that is the case is because, the truth is we live with a lot of uncertainty in life, right? And in our personal lives, in, in, our, in our political, in the world that we live in. The truth is we live with a lot of uncertainty, but we as, as human beings, we want to minimize that uncertainty. We would like to be in control or at least think that we're in control. So we come up with ways to try to manage the world for ourselves We come up with ideas and with theories. It's kind of the way that we are. And often, however, those things turn out not to be true. So I'm not much of a conspiracy theorist. But I do confess this morning that I do believe in a divine uh, conspiracy in a manner of speaking. Um, What do I mean by that? And what I mean by that is that I believe that God is doing something in the world, something profound in the world, and God wants to um, do something profound even in your life and my life, but many people, certainly people, let's say, that are outside the church who have no orientation or interest in Christianity, I would say many of them are missing what God is doing altogether. It's like hidden in plain sight. They're missing, this is the divine conspiracy of a matter of speaking, they're not looking for it. And even many of us in the church, the message uh, today, 
We ignore what God is doing, right? Right in front of our face or in our life because he doesn't do things the way that we expect him to do them, right? That's the blind spot for us. The great passage, you could probably finish it for me, you know, uh, my ways are not your ways, right? My thoughts are not your thoughts. This is a theme throughout the Bible that is the Old Testament, Jesus Bible, but it's certainly true in the New Testament. And really, if you look carefully and think about it through the entire, it's illustrated, throughout the entire Old Testament, that what God does, his ways are not our ways, right? God is doing something, and we are missing it. And, and you know, we want God to, we miss it because we want God to do what he's, to, to do it our way. We want him to, you know, save our marriage this way. We want him to advance our career this way, and on and on. But God doesn't do things our way. He does things his way, and he screams it sometimes in the scriptures and the, throughout them to say, listen, this is why faith is so important. This is why you need to trust me, because you're not going to be able to figure out what I'm doing, not only on the grand scale of the world, what's going on in the world today, but even what I'm doing in your life, because I don't think the way that you do. I don't um, act the way that you do, and that's why you need to trust me. And this is perhaps, um, you know, no more true, this idea, than it is true in the cross of Jesus Christ, right? That God is, in a manner of speaking, doing something that is profound, but not in the way that you and I would think that he would do it, okay? It's perhaps no more true than it is in the cross, which is the centerpiece of the Bible, the cross of Jesus Christ, it's the centerpiece of the Christian faith, and I would say, many would say, the centerpiece of human history. And if you want to truly understand what the Christian faith is, and if you want to successfully live the promises, this is where the application of today's message, if you want to successfully live the promises of the Christian faith, you need to understand the message of the cross, the title of my message the message of the cross. What does it mean and how do I live it in my own life? 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25. Listen carefully. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. There's the divine conspiracy, right? Same event seen radically different by people. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? How has he done that? He's talking about the crucifixion, the, 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 the salvation given in Jesus. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. Show me, God. I'll believe you then. Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, 
both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. This is a great moment in the, in the, in the writings of the Apostle Paul. And what he's essentially doing is he's taking an Old Testament theme. Listen carefully. Because Paul was, those of you who know this, he was not only an apostle, the 13th apostle, so to speak, but the apostle Paul was a, was a scholar. He was a member of, he was a Pharisee. He was a, he was a religious scholar and became a Christian and, and, a, and the apostle. But the apostle Paul takes this great theme and that he sees throughout the Bible. And in this moment, he's saying this theme, there is a theme throughout the entire Old Testament that comes to its full expression in the cross in the theme that it was throughout the Old Testament that comes to full expression in the cross is this great reversal of values that is seen in the choices that God has been making throughout the history of time and in the scriptures if you pay attention. Let me just give you a couple of very quick examples. The choice of Abraham. Right? Paul's trying to bring some, put some pieces together, tell you what the cross means. It's a reversal of values. It's a conflict of wisdom. You and I say God should do things this way. The world does things this way. The world makes hay this way. The world advances itself this way. God says, I do things in a very different way. My ways are not your ways. I don't think like you. And my value system is very different. And if you want to see the Christian life really take root in your life, you not only need to, yes, receive Jesus as your Savior, but you need to open, you need to have a conversion of the imagination relative to how God acts in the world. And the cross is the centerpiece of that. Look at Abraham. Right? What is he saying? God says, listen, I want to populate the world. I want to start a people group that's going to, like a little mustard seed, but it's going to grow and be this massive people group. I want to create a nation, so I'm going to find a guy who is fertile. That's what I'd do. Well, that's not what God does. He finds a guy who's almost 100 years old, who's married to a woman who's in her 90s, whose life has been basically categorized in this small provincial community as people who could never have kids, and they live under that shame. He says, that's the guy I'm going to choose. Well, why would you choose that guy? Well, because my ways are not your ways. Then I'm going to choose his grandson, Jacob, right? This is the theme Paul is, is teasing out, who is, I'm going, to, I'm going to change his name to Israel, and I'm going to make him the father of the nation of Israel. I'm going to make his name synonymous with the people of God. Really, the people of God. Is he a great man? Is he a priest? Is he a holy man? No, he's a self-centered, self-absorbed, self-focused guy who would sell his uh, you know, his, his, uh, his grandmother uh, to get ahead. Well, why would you choose him? Because I don't do things the way that you do them. Well, how about David? The, perhaps the most well-known name, the most important figure in the Old Testament. Jesus is called the son of David. That is, he came out of the genealogy of David. And what about David? When Israel says, I want a king, God says, the nation's ready to have a king. Israel's ready to be a monarchy. And Saul was a failure. And I'm going to now choose a man after my own heart. Great. Who am I going to choose? I'm going to go to Jerusalem because that's the capital city. It's one of the most important cities. And I'm going to find some important elite family that's well known. No, I'm not going to go to Jerusalem. Samuel, I want you to go to Bethlehem. This little know-nothing village where uneducated people and, and, and the rural people live. And I want you to go to a couple called Mary and Joseph 
who are teenagers, who are poor. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring the Messiah through them. I'm going to choose Abraham. I'm going to choose Jacob. I'm going to choose David. I'm going to choose Joseph and Mary. Get ready for it. I'm going to choose you. <laughs> I didn't read the whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 1, but he basically gets Paul, Paul takes his argument and says, listen, you want to understand how radical God works? You want to see that God does not do things the way the world does? He's not building a church on the strong and the, and the charismatic and the beautiful and the, and the right families. He's saying, look in the mirror. <laughs> in other words, that's what he says. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He's building a church in a different way. First point, in the cross, a way of seeing the world has been turned upside down. Okay, this is very important. Simply Christian. In the cross, a way of seeing the world has been upside down. The cross is not just the historical event and vehicle that brings about our faith. Jesus died for my sins. Much more than that, right? The cross is a, is a way in which we are to, it, it, it's, a, it, it's a way in which we are to experience the Christian faith and see the whole world. And if you don't experience the Christian faith vis-a-vis the cross, if you don't see the world and even see God through the cross, the promises of God will not be realized in your life. Let's look at the original prophecy quickly because he says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. And then he quotes Isaiah 29. I'm going to destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligence I will frustrate. It's, it's one of the many themes where he says, I'm going to confound the world's expectations. Look at the whole quote, Isaiah 29. These people come near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, in this case talking about the Old Testament people of God in the 8th century, but their hearts are far from me. Okay, This is the danger being warned against even in 1 Corinthians and here this morning. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they've been taught. Therefore, once more I will astound these people. With wonder upon wonder, the wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. God says, once more, just like I did with Abraham, just like I did with Jacob, just like I did with David, just like I did with Hannah. And we could go on and on and on. I'm always going to choose the wrong person, the one that's out of gas. I'm always going to choose the strategy that no one else would choose, Joseph and Mary, to make a point. And the cross is the head of it. And he says, I'm going to do it here. And let me just tell you what was going on in this passage very quickly. Paul's quoting this passage for a reason. The nation of Israel, under David and Solomon, became, went from a small little tribe of people, know nothing, you know, there in, 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 in Jerusalem, in, in, in Zion, so to speak. I mean, they were, they were a small people, came out of nothing. But by the time you move forward, okay, almost a thousand years, they had become a world power. They had become on the map. Jerusalem, remember they, the, the, the queen of Sheba came all the way up from parts of Africa and she came to see the wisdom of Solomon and his gold and his military prowess and his wealth. And he said, we haven't seen half of what this is. It's unbelievable, okay? That's where they were. But they had lost something in the process. They'd become full of themselves. They'd become um, a little enamored with their own wisdom, their own intelligence, their own money, their own influence. And they had a problem in the 8th century. 
And that problem was, like a lot of big nations, other nations wanted to, to, um, to overrun them. And the nations from the north were coming, and they were, they were threatening Liz, Israel militarily. And so the prophet comes to them, to the leaders of Judah, the leaders of Israel, this prophecy. And he says, in a manner of speaking, they're freaking out. And they say, listen, he says, take a breath. Don't freak out. You've, we've been down this road before. Listen to the word of God. He's delivered you time and time again. Just continue to trust him. Put your trust in him. Believe in the word of the Lord. I'm telling you, you got nothing to worry about. Put your faith in him. Trust in him. And he will once again deliver you through this difficulty. Like he's done a hundred times before. And they said to him, you know what they said to him? Listen, Isaiah, we appreciate what you have to say. But we're not some little small two-bit uh, you know, tribe anymore. We've got real uh, enemies. And um, we, we can't just pray about it and go to bed. So this is what we're going to do. We are going to go to Egypt, right, where we once were slaves. And they're of great power. And we are going to have a military alliance because Egypt is going to help us against the enemies that are coming, right? They said, we'd love to pray uh, about it, Isaiah, but here's what they said. We have to be realistic, right? We have to be realistic. And we need to find our own wisdom and our own way out of here. Yesterday, it's a funny story, interesting. Karen Wood, our missions director, she sends me a text. She says, she knows this couple that I know. She says, um, do you think this couple would be interested in going to Peru um, this summer. I, she knows I know them. I said, I, I don't know, maybe. I said, I know they're really busy and, and it's not a lot of time, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, not ask them. She says, okay, great, I'll do it. So I just, for fun, I sent them a text, a little advance warning. And I said, hey, what do you guys think about this? It was interesting. I got a text back. You know, sometimes it was almost like, I mean, I don't know, five seconds was there. I mean, it was like, I hit the button and five... No. I thought, wow, how could you process something that fast? And I know this, this couple of friends of mine, I said, let me just say something. That was the fastest text I've ever gotten. Were you waiting for that? And I said, um, well, I was kind of having fun. I go, what about praying about it? You know, I mean, just thinking about it. And they got back, this guy got back to me and he said, um, uh, yes, you're right. We need to pray about it. But he said, but it's not realistic, okay? It's understandable, right? That's what's really at root here, right? God's ways are not our ways. In the cross is a way of seeing the world. Uh, in the cross, a way of seeing the world has been turned upside down. What Isaiah is saying in this full prophecy is, listen, God talk is cheap. He's talking to Christians, Right? But he's, he's saying he's talking to Christians who, um, you know, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, right? They, 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 they're not really living necessarily, right? Um, they're looking at the difficulties. They're looking at the challenges. They're looking at the size of the enemies, and they're saying, listen, I got to be realistic, right? He's saying that's not what the, the cross should forever tell you, that God doesn't do things that way. It subverts human wisdom. It's a reversal of values. And even the Apostle Paul, 
I'm gonna, you, I didn't print this, but this is what they said about him later. His letters are weighty, 2 Corinthians 10.10, 10, and forceful, but in person, he's unimpressive, and he's speaking amounts to nothing. Why is that in the Bible? It's a very hurtful statement. But here's what happened. In Corinth was like the New York City of the ancient Near East, and, or of this part of the uh, world in, in Europe. It was like a New York City. And they were enamored with people in this day who had rhetorical gifts. I mean, the people they put microphones in front of in, in this day were, were people who were charismatic speakers, kind of like movie stars today. We ask them what they think. They were, that's who they were. That's who they were attracted to. And so Paul came, no nonsense speaking the truth, and, and, he, and they became Christians, but they weren't very impressed with him because he wasn't that good looking, and he wasn't an impressive speaker, wasn't a great communicator. It's what Paul says about himself, though, in response. Here's the warning. The very next chapter, 1 Corinthians 2, 4, and 5. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. He says, guys, I'm not com- if you're looking for Socrates or uh, Cicero, you're not going to find it here. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, that's the danger, but on God's power. Let me say something. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I said this last week, if you were here. Simply Christian is not simple Christian. I'm not, gonna, I'm not trying to give you the cookies on the lower shelf, maybe the opposite, okay? But I'm trying to say, do you really know the Christian faith? Are you really living it? Have you embraced it? 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is one of the most um, important passages of Scripture on this doctrine called election and predestination. People are thinking, oh, pastor, don't go there. Oh, my gosh, don't go there. Right? All right. Which means, this is a dumbed-down version. Those of you who may be critics of it or say, uh, you know, God chooses people to go to heaven. He elects them. And he chooses people to go to hell. Okay? This is a doctrine that's been around for 2,000 years. This is one of the most important passages on this. That's why it says, God chose the foolish things of the world. The verses just after the ones we read. God chose the weak things. God chose the... God chooses. And God chose Abraham. You wouldn't have done it. God chose uh, Jacob. You wouldn't have done it. God chose Hannah. You wouldn't have done it. God chose uh, Joseph and Mary. You wouldn't have done it. And guess what? He chose you. And you wouldn't have done it. But the doctrine of election, which is not my sermon this morning, we look at it and we say, we question God's love. So, oh, you know, for 2,000 years we write books about it and how can we believe in a God who would choose? Listen, it's the wrong way to think about it. The doctrine of election is not meant to raise the question of God's love. It's meant to be a challenge to human pride. <laughs> it's saying, listen, if you're a Christian... It's not because of how smart you are. It's not because of what church you went to. It's not because of your pedigree or your skin color or your intelligence. Or it's for no other reason than the grace of Almighty God. That's what the cross is. See, the cross is a way in which the whole way of the world has been turned upside down. That's what we're talking about. It creates a whole new community built on the grace of Almighty God. Second point. The cross is a challenge to our understanding and our expectations of God's nature. See, sometimes we just think the cross is the great 
reality in the instrument through which God accomplished the salvation of the world. And that's true. It's, it's still profound that God's, his innocent son, God the son and the son of God, died in our place. He was punished for you and me on this historical um, cross 2,000 years ago. And somehow God used that to bring about the salvation of all who believe. It's an amazing thing. But it's so much more than that. The cross is also the deepest truth about the character of God. It tells you something, or it should, not just about what God did, but who God is. Look at lesson again, why they missed it. A lot of people in Paul's day. The same two objections, the same two um, reasons that people miss God or miss what God is doing are the same today as they were 2,000 years ago. Verse 23. The Jews demand signs and the Greeks look for wisdom. In other words, they say, listen, God, I'll believe in you when you show up in this way. I'll believe in you when I'm convinced by your argument. And Paul's saying, listen, I know that's the way the world works, but the guy that God sent as the Messiah is not a military leader, and he's not a charismatic speaker. He's a prophet who's offering a way of life built on God's love. And unless you see that, you're going to miss what God is doing. Why does it say the Jews seek after a sign? Think about you, your relationship with God. What are you looking, how do you envision God and what are your expectations of God? What they're saying is, listen, show me a sign. Now, why did the Jews say that? Why does he say the Jews look for, think about the Jewish story. The plagues, the most important story in the Old Testament from the standpoint of a Jewish narrative, how they got their identities, the Exodus that's when the Jewish people became on the map. What's the Exodus about? God showing signs. I'm going to show 10 plagues and every one after the other, I'm going to demonstrate my power through the, through the frogs. I'm going to demonstrate my power through the gnats. I'm going to demonstrate my power through the blood in the Nile. I'm going to demonstrate my power through the killing of the firstborn. I'm going to demonstrate my power through opening the Red Sea. I'm going to demonstrate my power through opening the Jordan River. I'm going to demonstrate my power through raining down uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner for 40 years. Show me a sign, Right? That's how God works, but not anymore, Paul says. The ultimate and final sign to countenance all signs is the cross of Jesus Christ. There is no more signs. And if you want to know who God is and how he works, you want to know his value system, it's the cross of Jesus Christ. And what he says at the end, here's the application, we'll be done. For the foolishness of God, that's another way of talking about the cross, you know what Paul says in Romans chapter 1? He says, the gospel, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've always wondered what that meant for years. Because it's the power of God unto salvation. I thought, why would Paul have to say that? Why would you have to say, I'm not ashamed of it, unless people were ashamed of it, or people um, thought it was associated? Well, why? well, I'll tell you why. Because after two... Uh, thousand years of anticipating the great Messiah, God finally shows up 
But he doesn't show up like a Moses. He doesn't show up on a white horse, you know, routing the Roman uh, occupiers. He doesn't end all wrongs and reestablish Israel. He shows up on a donkey, not a white horse, and he gets crucified, okay? And it was a disappointment to the people of God that God had showed up that way. That's not what they were expecting. The weakness of the cross, but he's saying, is stronger than human strength. And it's the weakness of a cross that holds the power to change you if you know how to put it at the center of your life. Here comes the application. In the cross, we find a new identity and a new way of life. That's really what I'm talking about. To enter the world of the gospel is to undergo a conversion of the imagination, right? It's not just a transaction from which you benefit from. It's a conversion of the imagination where you see yourself and the world in a completely different way. And the way that you see it is the cross because the cross... Every time you look at it, you think about it, you imagine it, you, you, you see it at the center, you see two things at the same time. You see both the depth of your sin. When you look at that cross, I mean in your mind, in your heart, you are to see the depth of your sin. I've been a Christian for 35 years. You think you must have finally gotten to the bottom of your life, Rob, right? No, I haven't. I still learn things about myself in quiet contemplation that, about my own sin that I didn't know before, right? And the cross is not only an instrument to remind us of the depth of our sin, which is sobering, but at the same time of the height of God's love. As Tim Keller said, we, we look at the cross, we are more uh, wicked than we ever imagined, but we are more loved than we ever dreamed, okay? And it's unless you and I see that as the way in which we look at the world, we're never really going to experience the promises of God because we want God to show up in a certain way, but that's not how he shows up. He shows up through the continual work of the cross in your life to say, listen, I want to go deeper. I've gotten down, I've, 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 I've plumbed so deep in your life over the last five years. Are you ready? I want to go another couple inches and I'm going to do that through opening up your understanding of the depth of your sin where I want to reveal this sin that's painful but I want to then heal that sin right watch this last verse first second Corinthians 4 10 and 11 listen carefully this is what Paul's taught this is deep theology but you can practice it in an everyday way, in your prayers and in your walk with God. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. What in the world is he talking about? For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. What? in the world is he talking about? He's saying, listen, this is how the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. He's saying, listen, the cross is, is, is a historical reality 2,000 years ago. I believe that. The Bible affirms that. 
that Jesus died on a real instrument. He died, and God used it as the vehicle to judge the sins of the world. But it's so much more than that. It's a revelation into the character of God, and it's a spiritual reality through which you and I are remade to become more like Jesus. How does that happen? Because I carry in my body. He's not talking about persecution here. Persecution's from the outside. He's saying, there's a work going on inside of me. It's not about my enemies throwing stones at me. I carry in my body the death of Jesus, which means every day I, I, I look at my life vis-a-vis the cross. And in a way that's, that's beyond our uh, capacity to understand, right? Paul says in Romans, yield your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And, you know, buried with him in the, in the, in the likeness of his death, right? And risen in the likeness of his resurrection. I carry in my body the death of Jesus. I'm always asking God, show me, Holy Spirit, the greater depths of my sin. So that I can feel bad about myself? No. So that in that revelation also comes a healing. So that the life of Jesus might be um, released within me. Right. This is what we're talking about. This is the weakness of God. And this is how we have a new identity, and a new way of seeing the world. And the more that we do that over time, right, the, le- the more we can look at the world not as a place to get something, right? That's the, that's, the way of, that's the wisdom of the world. I need to get money. I need to get advancement. I need to get people on my side. I need to get what I want through. I, I don't look at the world as a place to get something, but I look at the world as a place to give something because my deepest needs have been met. Amen? Amen. That's what the cross is about. That's what communion is about, which is what we're going to do right now here together, okay? We're going to pass out this uh, cup and this bread and encourage you all to take them both, right? And then we will share them together in just a few minutes. I'll share this, lead this uh, as a congregation together. Let us pray. Father, thank you for these moments that we have. And Lord, we come uh, in, in a very practical, humble way before you. But we believe that this um, experience, this bread, this cup, Lord, is, represents spiritual truths that are, are beyond our wildest imagination. Help us, even in these few minutes, to enter into a conversion of our own imagination that we might yield our lives more fully to a work of the cross that you might show us, Lord, even in these quiet moments where we need um, your greater healing. We need your greater um, penetration of your truth and where we also, Lord, might experience not only the conviction of sin but the... the, um, the joy of, uh, of forgiveness and the joy of and the release of the life of Jesus that it might be manifest in our lives, our minds, our bodies. And we just ask that you would be working throughout this, um, this auditorium in Jesus' name. Amen.